On this episode of Cinema Smorgasbord Presents, we do our own stunts, we take a step back from Jackie Chan's slow ascent to fame to look at the early work of another future superstar, John Woo. It's 1976's Hand of Death. Welcome to We Do Our Own Stunts, a chronological look at the life and work of martial arts superstar Jackie Chan. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me is the world's deadliest man, Liam O'Donnell. How you doing today, Liam? You know, I'm pretty good, Doug. Uh, I, I do feel like, is is this chronological? I've lost track. Are we? Are, have we jumped the timeline at all? So here's the thing, listeners. Uh, right uh, now, on this episode, where we're going to discuss Hand of Death. Hand of Death was a movie that was made before... Uh, Loway uh, took Jackie Chan uh, and tried to mold him into, quote-unquote, the next Bruce Lee. This is actually the movie that, I guess, uh, convinced him that Jackie Chan might be uh, able to do that. So we're actually going backwards a little bit. I was going from the uh, Wikipedia filmography link uh, in terms of the order that we were doing things. So this is not quite chronological. This movie did come out in 1976, which is what we're in the midst of. But in terms of what we're going to be talking about regarding how this movie came about, that happens immediately before uh, New Fist of Fury. I I feel like in some of these older movies, Jackie Chan like looks different to me. Am I crazy? Yeah. No, I mean, we have discussed this in some of our previous episodes. I thought so. This movie, I noticed it. That's why I'm bringing it up again. I'm sorry. We haven't been too explicit about it, simply because it's always been kind of drenched in rumor. But, I mean, there's no reason that we can't talk about it. The fact is, rather notoriously, Jackie Chan had surgery on his eyes to widen them, to make them look, quote, unquote, more Western, uh, in the hopes that he could uh, expand his appeal internationally. Uh, and if you watch these earlier roles, and it is, like you said, Liam, very visible in this movie, which he has a significant amount of screen time in, uh, he looks different because his eyes are not as wide as we're, we're used to seeing them. That's so strange because I I would not think that the that difference makes him more or less appealing to me, mm-hmm. but maybe a, the, part of the reality of growing up in a, uh, a hegemonic society, right, is that I don't get to know. Maybe it's true. Maybe if Jackie Chan hadn't gone through the surgery, I would have seen Rumble in the Bronx when I was a kid and been like, who's this guy? I don't like him, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that is true. But in my brain, it doesn't feel true at all because though he looks different, I don't find him, like, less appealing or something before the surgery, you know? He also has, like, a wispy mustache in some of these early roles, which I yes. do think that one is directly unappealing. Yes, <laughs> he just – facial hair is not the look for – for for our man it's just not really good but yeah you know it's uh, you know i i don't want to focus too much we we it, it, quite literally his looks are not what draws me to him you know it's it's really the the performances so i don't i don't want to make that a big thing but it is true like now having watched a few of these early movies for this podcast i have started to realize like something changed and i i wasn't aware of what it was really it's going to be interesting to hit that point where we notice the change to the look that we're used to. Certainly by Drunken Master, I believe he has that look, which again, that's 1978. We're in 76 right now, so I guess we'll be able to visually see it at some point. Uh, and it's, it does feel kind of like a weird thing to call out, but it's the fact is it's something that if you're looking back on these older films, you are going to notice. And it is very much on display in this movie. Um, one of the things that I do want to talk about are some of the circumstances around where Jackie Chan was in his life when Hand of Death was made. Now, we had talked about before we got into New Fist of Fury how Jackie Chan was, you know, he was doing a lot of stunt work. He hadn't really been starring in many movies. We we were getting kind of frustrated with seeing him in small parts in a lot of uh, non-Kung Fu movies or particularly small parts in Kung Fu movies as well. And that's where he was kind of stuck. And he had moved to Australia and was kind of like just... He still wanted to work in show business, but I think he was getting kind of convinced that it was unlikely to be his path forward. So he decided, since his friend, and again, the, the guy that he was uh, in the Peking Opera School with and was his literal, well, figurative, I should say, big brother, Sammo Hung, was working for Golden Harvest as a fight choreographer and as an actor, he called Sammo and said, look, can you get me any work? And since uh, Sammo was the fight choreographer on this movie, Hand of Death, they were heading to South Korea to film it, and he was like, look, if you come to South Korea, 
I'll get you work on this. I think at first it was just to be as assistant fight choreographer, but John Woo later gave him a role in the movie, a pretty significant role. I think there's kind of a um, apocryphal tale that that part was originally supposed to go to a South Korean actor. I don't think there's any truth necessarily to that simply because it is such a large part and sort of an important part of the climax of the movie. But at least somebody on that set um, saw that he had the potential to at least be a you know, a competent actor, uh, as well as a, you know, someone who could hold up their side of the fighting part of the movie. Uh, so that's kind of how Jackie Chan uh, ended up in this movie. Of course, the John Woo that they interact with, uh, the John Woo who filmed this in 1976, isn't the John Woo that pro that became famous in Hollywood in the 1980s and 1990s. Liam, I did want to start, before we take our break today, I want to talk a little bit about John Woo. When sure. were you first aware of John Woo as a filmmaker? Oh, man. So I um, I think I've talked a little bit here. So if I am repeating myself, I apologize. But sure. I uh, when I graduated from high school, I had not great grades. And so my college options were limited. And there was uh, a satellite campus of a school that I don't know if it's well known, but it, it was important in my state. Uh, I was living in Jersey at the time. Uh, Rutgers had a smaller, less great campus in Camden, so I could take the train from my parents' house. So they had like a like a program that was kind of like a remedial program. Like we'll let you in, but it's sort of not in the official program in case you like shit the bed. It doesn't make right. our numbers go down. <laughs> and so I was doing that program. And one of one of the things I liked about Rutgers as compared to where I ended up. Uh, finishing college was that they had a very loose kind of core you could you know you want to take a history class take any history class you want the idea that you would need to take western civ specifically was just not a thing so i started off my first semester taking this east asian history class and i loved that professor so much that i ended up all uh two years that i was there before i transferred to a different school i every semester i took a class with this this mm. professor i just thought he was the best and so in one of those classes he was like hey i'm hosting a series of films on campus and um he was talking to me and my friend richie roja at the time who's very good friends with my co-host josh alvarez um and they were my i had I like this uh, this uh crew of like three filipino dudes i knew from hardcore shows <laughs> and so richie roja uh you know through his family knew some more about like hong kong cinema than i did and so when the this professor said, hey, I'm showing on film The Killer. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but I think as these young, edgy guys that we were, <laughs> he thought we would like it. And Richie damn well lost his mind. Like, The Killer on film? Oh, my God. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I don't know what we're talking about, guys. Like, I had no idea what was going on. And Richie was like, we're going to go. And I'm like, I don't know. You know, I got work. I specifically called out of work to go watch the killer in this like <laughs> college theater with him on film. And this was, you know, I've said, I didn't really get into film as like a medium thing. I was always a movie fan, but I didn't get to a point where I knew anything about anything until later in college. So this was not like something I was looking for. I wasn't going to like a lot of uh, retro screenings of things or whatever. The only ones I ever went to were the horror ones because I was kind of a horror guy. And so I went to this thing and it just destroyed me. Like after that, I was like, I need to see everything this guy has done. And, it, you know, he had already started to do or was starting to do uh, American films. So like right. when I saw The Killer and then I saw, you know, Face Off, I was like, uh, this is the same guy, right? Like, I was trying to work this out, you know what I mean? Because I, you know, the killer was the first experience I had, and it was so unexpected. I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. I think I probably ran into John Woo's Hong Kong films a little bit earlier than you, uh, mostly uh, from two directions. One was uh, because in the mid-'90s, if you were getting into film or you were, especially if you were like an edgy uh, teenager, you probably were already into Quentin Tarantino's films and your and sure, fiction yeah. had just come out in 94. Tarantino was very vocal about his love for Hong Kong filmmaking um, <laughs> and his homages to that style of filmmaking. So John Woo was kind of in the air in the conversation. But the other thing was... I was a huge fan of The Evil Dead, which I may have brought up on, on this podcast before, but certainly one of our podcasts. And um, I followed Sam Raimi's career very closely, and Sam Raimi produced Hard Target, 
the John Woo's first American film with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, and so I was very aware of that movie when it was coming out and the fact that John Woo had this reputation. Uh, and even though I lived in a, a province where tracking down, you know, bootlegs of these action movies was uh, kind of difficult. I strongly remember around 95, 96, getting a copy of Hard Boiled and The Killer and being able to see those kind of in close proximity. And of course, once you see those two movies, you're like, this guy, like, this is how action movies are supposed to be. I know that sounds kind of ridiculous now, but it, it is kind of funny that if you watch action movies from you know, the kind of action, especially the the kind of gunplay movies that were coming out in American films in the early yeah. 90s compared yeah. to, you know, the post 95, 96, let's say even post like Broken Arrow, even though I'm not a huge fan of that movie. It, it, it's kind of like night and day. Uh, it, it, there really was kind of like a watershed change. And John Woo was the, the, the main uh, focus of oh. that change. Well, and the part of the weird thing for me was I was a hard target fan because I was... Uh, in my young naivete, a Jean-Claude Van Damme fan. So I had seen that and Time Cop and a bunch of his stuff. And uh, I just didn't, you know, I know this is weird because I am into it now. And so when people interact with me now, they have trouble imagining that in high school I was watching maybe as many movies as I am now. But the Mm -hmm. idea that I would do the work, especially since the internet wasn't really quite right. a thing yet mm-hmm. the idea that i would do the work to figure out who these directors were it didn't even occur to me like it, it did for tarantino but that was only like two or three movies during that you know what i mean like it wasn't like oh, i gotta do all this research it's like oh he's got a new one i'll watch his new one you know um but the revelation in high school i had that the guy who directed uh escape from new york was the same guy that directed the thing that directed halloween that directed uh big trouble in little china because all those movies are really important to me I didn't even know that. I was watching those movies over and over again, having no idea it was the same guy. This was the same thing. If you had told me before I saw The Killer that it's the guy who did Hard Target, I would have been like, oh, so it's probably pretty good. You know what I mean? Like, it it, it just, I didn't know to look those things up. And really, it wasn't until IMDb that I started to get truly obsessed with oh, this person made this and this and this. I need to watch all their other movies. That wasn't a thing for me. I just watched movies because people, like I heard from people or I read in various places that this movie was good and it was similar to something else I liked. The idea that I would do my own research and go on my own quest really was like a later college, almost post-college thing for me. I feel like a lot of uh, people, even who are familiar with John Woo's, uh, you know, immediately pre-Hollywood career and Hollywood career aren't as familiar with the fact that he made a lot of martial arts movies in the 1970s. Sure, um, yeah. Uh, or at least a few at the very least. And in fact, his he cut his teeth at the feet of Chang Che, the famous uh, Shaw Brothers director. And in fact, most of the themes that we generally connect with John Woo, like the heroic bloodshed type movies and that the, the uh, male friendships and male relationships at their core, they come directly from the films of Chang Che. Uh, so, uh, you know, if, if, I'm... Sure, our listeners are probably familiar with some of Chang Che's movies, like The Five Venoms and Crippled Avengers, that sort of stuff. But you can really see an echo of a lot of the themes from those movies in John Woo's later films. But what I wanted to ask you, Liam, is did you see any of those thematic things that are kind of connected with John Woo's career in this film that we're going to be talking about today? That's interesting. I wasn't really thinking about that when I watched it. My, mm-hmm. We'll get into more of the details in a little bit about the, the movie itself, but my experience of the film was more like almost just the pure entertainment of a martial arts film. Sure. I really – the plot of this film is not confusing. I don't want to say that, but it's not immediately engaging. So like, I found myself at times being like, who's this guy again? Oh, yeah, right. Okay, I remember. You know what I mean? Um, That being said, I I guess so. I mean, honestly, it's hard for me to see any film that involves this kind of idea of Shaolin. So there there are films where Shaolin is like a a source of power, and you almost have to rebel against Shaolin. But Mm -hmm. then there are lots of movies where Shaolin is like a... Almost like an oppressed group, right? Like they're a yeah. secret, you know, because the good, whatever, whatever. Those movies all have some theme of brotherhood, right? Because it's a question of like your commitment to that community, you know? I will say that this particular movie, um, the idea of the betrayal is uh, one of the most frustrating aspects of the movie. Because as soon as these two random nameless brothers show up, 
who are never in the celebratory <laughs> moments of our main characters, you know that they're the betrayers from that second. And and seeing these other three gentlemen love each other and have their own kind of like you know uh, sacrificial brotherhood thing, it, it I I was less focused on the elements of that that is i guess very john woo like now that you bring it up and more focus on the fact that like you guys don't notice that those other two guys don't high five you you know what i mean like every time you're stoked they're just not in frame this couldn't be more obvious that they're going to betray you you know what i mean but i was so distracted by that um (laughs) it 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 was so obvious that i started to think is this going to be a red herring? I've never seen this kind of red herring in a Kung Fu movie before. But no, it was just a very obvious betrayal. I, I do think that the element of the film where it's at first it seems like it's going to be about a single character. Sure. But yeah. he, he can't he can't overcome the obstacle of the big baddie and his you know, gang of sub baddies until he connects up with these other guys who are all going through their own shit and they all have their kind of their own trauma that they're overcoming. I do think that, you know, especially because John Wu wrote this movie, that there's that you can kind of feel at least a nascent version of the sort of themes that he would explore sure. later in something like well, The Killer. Well, I think, though, that that is exact or not exacerbated, but uh, highlighted by the fact that there's only three of them. I yes. think when it first starts, you think he's going to build a team, which would be similar to other Kung Fu movies to me. Like I feel like you get each person who brings their own element, and then in having each of those people, you form a complete unit because each of them plays their role. You know, That is not what happens here. He gets one guy on purpose, and then another dude kind of comes back. You know, Jackie Chan's character comes back, and then that's the whole team plus two random guys that you know from the first minute that they're going to betray them. So <laughs> it's not like it, – it isn't like getting the team together, which is like I think how I thought it was going to go. And n- – and because it's such a small unit, like three uh, people connected by fate who have their own stuff going on, that does feel more like a theme that you would associate with one of his other movies. This is what Jackie Chan had to say about John Woo from his uh, an original autobiography, I Am Jackie Chan. John was different. He knew what he was doing, even as a first-time filmmaker, and he had a vision. He didn't fall asleep when action sequences were being filmed. He cared about every move, every stunt, every fight as if he were performing them himself. He was kind and treated us well. If I ever did get the chance to direct, I realized this was the kind of director I wanted to be. But that would come later, much later. At that time, all I had to look forward to after the movie wrapped was months of hard work under Samo's thumb. So the uh, at the time that this movie came out, and we're going to talk about it when we talk about the movie proper, this movie did not do well. It, it flopped, and it, it kind of ended Jackie's dream once again of continuing to work with Samo because apparently Samo afterwards was like, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to work because all my movies seem to be flopping. This was one of the experiences that Jackie had that made him want to direct later because all the directors he had run into previously were you know overbearing or really unkind. And I guess it's the experience he had with John Woo that made him want to direct a little later in his own career. Kind of an interesting element, particularly because uh, this was a film where Jackie Chan was not just reuniting with Sammo, but also with uh, a lot of the other students of the Peking Opera School that he went to. But we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Any other thoughts on John Woo, Liam, before we take our first break? Well, it does make me curious now to wonder... um... At what point does John Woo make the transition from this more, I think, familiar genre that has already kind of been established into the kind of like crime and gun films that he becomes known for? Because, you know, I, I'll be I'm one of those people who like this is the first John Woo martial arts movie I've ever seen, I, where whereas his more gun focused films I've watched i think almost all of them so mm-hmm. um i i'm really curious to wonder what were some of those lesser known movies before that period and to maybe check them out uh my understanding is after the failure of a uh, financial failure of some of these martial arts movies he went on to make a series of comedies in the early 80s that are not particularly well liked uh, oh, okay. not necessarily reflect a lot of what would come after uh and it really was i mean there's a reason that a better tomorrow is kind of seen as that watermark of you know, that is kind of the beginning point a lot of not just John Woo's uh, action career going forward, but also of that kind of heroic bloodshed uh, thing that would, 
you know, that Chewie Hark would embrace, that Ringo Lam would embrace, that really would kind of dominate a lot of Hong Kong filmmaking in the late 80s and early 90s. So I think it's, I think it would be interesting to explore some of those early 80s films. I think they probably would be a little bit irritating to watch. Sure, yeah. But, but yeah, it's kind of hard to think, uh, hard to conceive of a John Woo, you know, comedy. Yeah, I don't, I have no idea. <laughs> Well, maybe we'll get a chance to see that. Liam, let us take our first break. When we return, we will be discussing 1976's Hand of Death. A survivor of an attack on a rebel group opposing the Manchu invasion of China creates the goose fist fighting technique and tries for revenge on a traitor. Uh, That's sort of the plot of 1976's Hand of Death, as we mentioned before, written and directed by John Woo. Also, it has a couple of other um, titles that are are somewhat well-known, including Countdown in Kung Fu, which is what it's known as in Australia, Dragon Forever. Uh, which would be used, I guess, as a with, for a different Jackie Chan movie later on. Uh, just Shaolin Men. I think it's a, the the literal translation of the title is Shaolin Gate. But yeah, so a lot of people would know it as Countdown in Kung Fu or Countdown in Death, that sort of thing. But right now, we're going to be talking about Hand of Death. As we mentioned already, the stunt coordinator on this movie was Sammo Hung. Sammo also appears in the movie, and we'll talk about a very notable element of his performance in uh, just a little bit. But um, I guess in terms of the chronology of, of, of Jackie Chan's career, one of the notable things about this movie is that it is the first movie that Jackie Chan, Yun Byu and Sammo Hung appear in, even though they don't appear in together. When I say is they all appear in this movie, but they're, uh, they don't actually necessarily all interact. In fact, uh, Yun Byu does a lot of uh, doubling, acrobatic doubling for other performers, but in terms of actually his appearance, he just shows up a couple of times as just like a, a person with a spear or just, just in fight sure, scenes, in yeah. mass fight scenes. Uh, and the other kind of notable thing about this movie is that when people list Jackie Chan's main injuries, and obviously he's had quite a few, uh, this movie is almost always mentioned because he knocked himself out cold doing a stunt. And in fact, if you watch the movie with that in mind, uh, it really does seem like they're, they're very careful to keep from showing him getting a lot of impact towards his head in a lot of the fighting scenes afterwards. And in fact, there's some weird jump cuts from him actually doing some sort of movements in the movie that suggest that maybe they were trying to cut around um, him because of his injury, but uh, but I don't know. Maybe it's it's a little hard to say, and it's also hard to find out where he might have knocked himself out. I mean, these things can happen so easily with these fight scenes. Um, the uh, the movie stars uh, Dorn Tan, a very familiar face for a lot of martial arts movies, also known as Flash Legs because of his fancy kicks, uh, and James Tian, who uh, probably a lot of listeners would recognize from uh, the. Uh, Bruce Lee movies like The Big Boss, um, and here he plays the bad guy, Shi Xiao Feng. Liam, that's a lot of talking leading into your thoughts on The Hand of Death. I mean, this is, for for my taste in martial arts films, this is a um, really entertaining movie that I am not particularly compelled by on any <laughs> sort of emotional level. Um, I can remember the plot, right? But I... At any moment in the film, I could find myself more focused on details that I like or details that I think are silly than I am that interested in what's happening on like a overall story narrative level. Right. Um, I like the fighting. I uh, I don't love Sammo Hung as just a goofy. I mean, he does some great fight scenes, but he's also treated as kind of like a useless lackey in a way. Yes. Whereas of the various, the eight generals or whatever they're called. Um, Mm -hmm. They're sort of the focus. And I find some of them less compelling Mm -hmm. than Sammo Hung. And so I want him to be more important in the film, and and he's not. And that's a bit of a frustration. Um, 
there's also just the reality of like you know, like I said, these movies kind of fall into two categories. You know, Shaolin's in charge, Shaolin's an oppressed group. And this is definitely, the Shaolin is an oppressed group, and they're on the side of uh, the people who are opposing the Manchus, which, you know, I as I said earlier, I took East Asian history. I studied this part of Chinese history. I have a lot of trouble remembering the differences and what's going on here. Right. You know, like, what, is this when they had to have hair or they didn't have hair? I don't remember. But, uh, but you know, none of that seems as important as sort of uh, the guy who's in charge is a former Shaolin student who betrayed the monks. Right. And that's really the emotional core. And it doesn't come across super strong. But on the other hand, I, I mean, I hate to say this because I've seen a lot of martial arts films that are sort of emotionally and narratively compelling. But my initial attraction to this genre had nothing to do with that, especially because, as you remember, the first versions of these films that were easily available, at least in this country, maybe it was different in Canada, um, sometimes the dubbing would be so bad, there's no (laughs) way you could know what the actual plot of the movie was because it was just insanity. They just were saying crazy things. And so now that we can actually learn the plots of these movies, sometimes they're like super compelling and fun, you know? Um, Sometimes they're not. But what draws me to them is my attraction to the choreography, um, to the pageantry of it, to the... uh, even the like weird categorizations, like there's this kind of fighting and that kind of fighting, and this guy has these two guys have uh, uh, Sinbad swords with uh, wicker <laughs> shields. Oh, that's cool, you know. Or these are the spear guys. Oh, spear guys. So like, all that stuff is what I'm compelled by, and this movie has a lot of that, and I found it a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, uh, even the the learning the technique that he needs to learn because this guy has this stiff arm technique, which by the way looks a lot like hardcore moshing in the nineties. <laughs> it really looks like the sort of windmills you'd see at like a at like a Fury of Five show. And this guy has to learn how to capture the arm and do, by fighting with bamboo sticks and whatever. All that stuff is is fun. Um, yes. When I will say, you know, there's there's three heroes by the end that you really care about. Um, you want their deaths to be important, and it's not that they're not important, but it, after a while, it just kind of feels like there's a lot of movie left with these guys just taking a lot of punishment. Mm-hmm. And I'm and I and I I'm kind of reminded that the whole you know I'm supposed to be on board that our hero is so tenacious that the fact that he's basically had his butt kicked for 20 minutes won't matter when he faces the toughest dude in the world <laughs> and you know part of me is always a little bit like that's kind of dumb you know what i mean like i don't love that but that being said it's it's you know it's kind of if you like this kind of movie this movie's pretty fun the whole way through even if it isn't the sort of thing that like breaks genre convention it's nothing new it's not like wow i didn't see that coming you know it's it's not a surprise but it's pretty good at what it does it is one of those movies that when it begins and it kind of throws a bit of history at you, you sure. might be a little bit confused. But I was a little confused during that kind of Shaolin massacre that opens the movie because uh, I got confused about what, what character we were supposed to care about, yeah. who were supposed to be the yeah. good guys. I mean, all you really need to know is the, the Shaolin monks are massacred. The Shaolin students kind of get pushed out into this nearby city. Um, Dorian Tan's character, Yunfei, he ends up going into the city with the idea that he's going to get revenge on James Tian's character. And in order to do that, he needs to form relationships uh, with Yang Wei as this kind of uh, swordsman and Jackie Chan as he was kind of a laborer whose brother was murdered. Uh, so, and those three get get together, as well as two other people who join that group, <laughs> who are kind of suspicious. And, <laughs> and they kind of, uh, they take on uh, the the big baddie James Tian they take on on his uh, eight uh, kind of sub baddies as well as Sammo Hung's character now Liam what is notable about Sammo Hung's character in this movie oh he's got these ridiculous fake teeth and and this is this isn't the only movie where he does this right I feel like I've seen him do this in other movies and it's always so distracting I guess big teeth is a symbol that you're stupid is that what that's supposed to be I think I think that this comes from classic like Cantonese comedy where you give these characters these kind of notable visual elements you'll see in a lot of martial arts movies people have big moles on their faces yeah or the, yeah, yeah that's uh, and things like that and i think this is just supposed to be an element to kind of make him less serious which is like you said it kind of works against it because his character 
aside from being a lackey, is meant to be taken seriously as a threat. Yeah, he's tough. He he he's not a bad fighter. I mean, he's not the 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 big boss, but he does okay, and he, and he's supposed to be somewhat intimidating. It's also unfortunate because. Um, Obviously, it's a source of comedy in the culture that it's represented, but it's one of the the images that I think plays into Western racist yes. stereotypes mm-hmm. of Asian folks. So, like seeing him with both these giant fake teeth and the ponytail, you're like, ugh, this is straight off like a bad advertisement from the 1800s. You know, like it's it just it, it is it kind of rubbed me the wrong way just a teeny bit not a lot just a teeny bit but also because i just love sam hung and i wanted to see more of him in the movie and he, and not that he's not significant in it but he really is uh he's played back and forth from he's scary and intimidating to he's a source of comedy a little bit i kind of thought that the movie was going to set up him turning switching sides i end. thought so Absolutely. too i thought so too because he, he becomes very sympathetic to our lead character. Um, and there's a part where that character, played by Doran Ten, ends up being tortured. And he basically sends the torturers away uh, and tells him to, like, like just, just you know, give up the information that we're looking for. And maybe we can get you out of this. But I can't help you if you don't talk. But you can tell that he, he likes him. And he thinks that he's, a, like, a tough, I guess, a heroish character. And there was a suggestion that maybe at the end that he's going to maybe join up with him. But that is kind of... <laughs> tossed out the window but at least i, re- I really kind of like that dimension even if it didn't go anywhere i was really ready for him to switch sides but uh, the indicator that that's not going to happen is the way almost in a very john woo style that this film is like no one's safe we're gonna kill everybody you know what i mean like once it's clear that even our heroes are likely to just die for the plot Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, Samuel Hung's just going to die. You know what I mean? Like, because I, I, it just feels like the movie is much more invested in um, being unsympa- or unprecious with our characters. Yes. And this is also one of those movies that once the bad guy dies, the movie wraps up in like 30 seconds. It's like, well, that's all, all right. that needed to happen. You just had to kill that one guy. <laughs> There's not thousands of soldiers dedicated to that cause or anything. It's just that dude sucks. So you got to kill him. I want to talk a little bit about Dorn Tan, uh, the lead actor in this movie, uh, a.k.a. Flashlegs. He was born in Korea. Uh, as I said before, this movie was made in South Korea. I think actually is a pretty attractive movie. Certainly in the version that we watched was a very nice-looking print. Uh, and there's a lot of like real widescreen images. Uh, he was notable for his skill in Taekwondo. He actually taught it to Yoon Byu as well as uh, Jonathan K. Kwan, a short round from, uh, from um, Temple of Doom. Uh, and the Goonies, and uh, Shannon Lee, the daughter of Bruce Lee. So he actually trained them. He was a familiar face in a lot of martial arts movies from around this time period. Though this might be a controversial thing to say, Liam, I think he's the weak link of the three characters in this movie. I just find his performance kind of bland. And I also have to say, his kicks are amazing. And when he's fighting, his kicks are, are like a real highlight. But when he's not kicking, I find a lot of his martial arts stuff to be very performative. And I know that's a common complaint about a lot of uh, kung fu movies anyway. But what, but really, even compared to the other performers in this, it feels like I'm always waiting for him to start kicking. What did you think of his performance here? Well, I just think it's in the, sty- the, the style of the time, yeah. it feels to me, is that your main character is the least compelling dude. They, they tend to be bland. And this dude is the blandest, just... Uh, again, when he's not fighting, he's not doing anything interesting. Whereas, like, even in the small role that Jackie Chan has in this movie, he tries to bring a little bit of character in life. And then the the uh, what what is the prodigal son? You know, the, yes. the prodigal swordsman, basically. Uh, that dude's charming and badass. Like he 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 uh, gives off an aura of cool that maybe is intangible. Maybe that's not acting per se, but mm-hmm. he brings something to the performance. This dude is a dead note. And I, I, I will say I like his fighting a little more maybe than you do, but that's partly because I just love his kicks. I think it's I think he's totally badass in that way. But I do agree overall, I think I prefer the swordsman and honestly prefer someone like Samo Hung to this dude. And like really if they switched roles <laughs> I don't think the movie wouldn't work. Like I really think this dude could more easily be the 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 jerky 
uh, second in command than he is this like uh, compelling leading man. But you know, again, the 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 character notes are not really why I'm watching the movie, so I'm not like punishing it too hard in my brain because whatever. But you know, what you want is great fighting, and like I said, I like his martial arts like performance, but I don't think he's as compelling as some of the other martial artists in the film who I think are just better. They're just better at what they're doing. So, well, that actually, I guess, turns us to the idea of action. If you're watching this for martial arts, how does this stack up to the kind of kung fu movies that you're watching from this time period? To me, it's like there's kind of a line that's drawn once you get the Yun Wu Ping style choreography that we'll see, uh, you know, in a few episodes and things like Snake and the Eagle Shadow and Drunken Master, which tend to be a lot more acrobatic. And then there's the more stage bound stuff that you see with Shaw Brothers. Here, we're still, you know, Golden Harvest is still sort of finding itself. It's not as acrobatic. It's not as kind of, um, there isn't a lot of comedy in the uh, action that we're seeing. Right. Yes. How did you find the fights in this movie? Adequate, which sounds bad, but I I, I don't mean it. To, I don't mean it to be bad. In that, um, I don't need all the fighting to be super explosive, over the top, crazy. I just need there to be some interesting stuff. I need some innovations as far as different weapons and things. Mm-hmm. I need a little bit of creativity. And honestly, I just like it. I just find it. And maybe this is not dissimilar to my feelings about dance. I just like the human body moving. Sure. And really, this is what this is. It's, I mean, there's a reason we're saying choreography, right? Like, fight. these people aren't really fighting. These fight scenes are meant to entertain. And these are sufficiently entertaining. And honestly, by the measure of the time, now, again, I'm no expert, but based upon my knowledge of martial arts movies in this period of the 70s, this isn't bad at all. It's not groundbreaking, but it's certainly... Uh, not boring to me, at right? Least. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think there's a lot of like fun things going on when he's fighting all of the generals or whatever they are at yeah. once. That was a great scene. I thought it was handled very well. Yeah, it that's was my creative. favorite in the movie. I think that's my favorite action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And towards the end, I think it gets a little stuffy, you know. And I and I actually think um, the fight with the big bad at the end. Mm-hmm is not as compelling as it could be, partially because it becomes predictable. He has to lose for the first half, then some (laughs) intangible thing happens where he starts to win, and then he's got to win straight through to the end. That that's not fights don't work like that. You know what I mean? Like that's you know what I mean? Like it's not that and especially like he's already tired. Like if we're gonna believe that there's some turn and then write that into the choreography. Like you know, give me some compelling and it doesn't have to be fair. You know what I mean? Like maybe he throws dirt in the jerk off's eye. I'm okay with that. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Like I don't need him, or he kicks him in the nuts. Whatever it is, but instead he just finds some internal grit and he turns the fight around, and that's fine. But it's just like predictable. It's just what you have seen in a million other movies, I mean, and that's that's exactly it. You've seen it so many times before. That moment where remember how he trained to combat this guy's one big special move. Oh yeah. right. I should remember to do that at like halfway through the fight after he's got his ass yeah. completely demolished. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, right, I'm going to do that now. And then he does it. And, of course, it works. And then it puts him in control of the fight. I mean, I, I do love the it, – it's one of those things where the cliches are both – they're both the most frustrating thing, but also one of the things that keeps me coming back to a lot right. of these kung fu right. movies. Because I like the cliche aspect. I like the idea that it, it makes you know so much sense in terms of a – a story way where it's like, I need to combat this. I come up with a technique to do it. I will then use that technique to combat the thing at the end of the movie. And even though it's kind of, it almost feels like a fable or like a, um, uh, you know, like it's like teaching the audience. It's like, this is why you should learn things so you can use it to apply to things later in your life. Uh, but it's just the same lesson being learned again and again and again. I, I also think there's this feeling that like, we have to see the big boss really beat the shit out of him for a while in order to be that much more emotionally compelled by the ending and it's never effective what would be much more effective is the fight starts big boss just automatically goes into his fighting technique that no one can fight dude has learned how to counteract it jacks him up and then just embarrasses him for five (laughs) minutes that's and again, maybe I'm maybe this is just my taste compared to other people's taste. I find that super compelling. This dude who's been the 
biggest, baddest guy for the whole movie. You learn this one thing that he wasn't ready for, and then you make him look like a dingbat for six minutes, and that's the end of your film. I'm in, I'm so on board with that, Doug. I want that in my life. Anyone who's been the top dog, and then they get to look like an asshole for, for a while on film, I'm into that. That's actually a super compelling thing for me. And um, only occasionally do you get it. Now, granted, again, there might there might be listeners who are super martial arts experts, uh, film experts is what I mean, who've seen a million movies that end that way. But for me, I've only seen it occasionally, and I just think it's an underused thing. I don't need to, to be reminded this guy is tough. We've already established he's tough. I don't need to see that. What I need to see is that my man crushing bamboo pulls between his hands for a five minute sequence was worth it and they don't pull it out to the end because of the repetition of those kind of themes you can see why audiences you know a couple of years from now when they start introducing comedy into movies like snake and the eagle shadow and drunken master how that must have been very refreshing for people who were right. very used yes. to this kind of seriousness that hit these patterns well now you know instead of learning this one technique to combat the villain. Now, like the guy's getting drunk and that's what allowed, right? It, it really does kind of change the whole um, interactions that are taking place. And it kind of changes the feel of these movies. And of course, just like how everything works, then everyone tries to imitate that. And there's dozens and dozens of not so great uh, Kung Fu comedies that come out in the late 70s and early 80s. Liam, we need to talk about Jackie Chan. Um, we have talked about him a little, as you mentioned before, doesn't really look like the Jackie Chan that we're familiar with, but thankfully, compared to some of the Jackie Chan movies we covered in the first few episodes of this show, there's a, there's a, he is not a star, uh, and he's not the star of this movie, but he is a solid supporting player, uh, and particularly when he returns back to the movie, uh, basically he's introduced fairly early on, uh, he's very reluctant to help the hero, and then later he appears once again and basically is all in for the rest of the movie. Uh, helps uh, forge the sword for our uh, prodigal son, helps, uh, you know, and, and shows his own talent with a variety of weapons. Liam, what do you think of Jackie Chan in this movie? I had this moment, Doug, where I was so worried. Because, as you said, and I've never seen this movie before, so when he shows up and then leaves, I thought, is that it for our man? That's not, I don't want that. And so when he shows up later, and not only does he have this character that's, you know, kind of fun and younger and, you know, compelling or whatever, but there is a teeny bit of humor where we see him training with his brother early on. Uh, I was like, oh, there's a little bit of the Jackie that I know, mm -hmm. you know, I like that. And then him just going back buck wild once the fighting starts with that spear and mm -hmm. being kind of like the guy who's willing to put himself in danger for them in a lot of ways a lot of that i thought really worked and i and i see uh, i i don't see the idea he's the next bruce lee because no. i think that was a psychosis that came over a whole group of people <laughs> that they needed to get over a lot quicker than they did because that was never going to happen for anyone but the idea that like oh, this guy's pretty good, maybe we could do something with him, is, I think, very real. It's just so strange that comedy didn't... Even the one little moment we have in this movie is so good that yes. I would have thought someone would go, what if he was kicking ass and it was funny? <laughs> it's so clear to us now that like going from this movie to the movies we know he made after this is like mind-melting for me because it's such a wasted opportunity. Again... Not that it matters because he did still end up having such a great career, but like, oh man, I just think uh, if anyone had known they could have started this journey for him at any moment and it would have been magical. It's so strange because it always feels like we're on the edge of like people figuring it out. Remember when we were talking about Shaolin right. Woodman yes. on the last episode? They talked about how like they were even rehearsing comedy stuff, but they knew they couldn't put it in the movie. And like you said, there's a couple of comedic moments here where it kind of hints at it. It's like, oh, that's so good. All it took was one person to realize, hey, maybe we should put that in the movie. In the and movie. That's all, that's all it would really take. But uh, yeah, and it's. It's also kind of funny that they're making movies so quickly at this point that it's like, I can't believe they don't figure it out for so long when literally in two years, he's already going to be on his way to becoming a superstar, right? Where it's true. They do, that long. No, that's very true. And I we should be more knowledgeable of that. It's just funny to me the number of movies where people used him and were like, I don't know, it doesn't seem to work. It's like uh, it, it's like you walk in a room and everyone's using this butcher knife as a hammer going, man, I just can't figure this thing out. It's just not hammering these nails right. And you're like, 
it's clearly a very good knife. I don't know what you're doing right now. You know what I mean? Like, for me, it's just it, it, there's already these hints of him and the magic that he can bring. The fact that it wasn't immediately obvious is just weird to me. But again, I got to admit, I'm biased after years of watching him be magic <laughs> that no one saw it because I see it shine through a little bit. It's funny that we're saying this when, you know, you have Sammo Hung, Hung and Yun Bio in this movie, and both of them are being misused at this point as Agree. well. Yeah. And it's going to be Jackie Chan kind of breaking through that's going to allow them to kind of get the center spotlight and, and to be uh, having their abilities used to, you know, best effect. I mean, Yun Bio in, in particular is someone in this movie who, you know, he's he's all over a lot of the movies from Golden Harvest at this time period, but he is always just in the background or just doubling for other people. And that's going to be the case for another couple of years. But, you know, Jackie Chan is going to open the door not just for himself, but for, you know, a lot of his, uh, his brothers as well. Liam, I want to read a little bit from uh, Rick Meyer's book, Films of Fury, the Kung Fu movie book. I know Rick Meyer is kind of a controversial uh, person in the martial arts circles, uh, but in terms of giving a little context into where we're going to be going from Hand of Death, even though we've already covered the movies immediately afterwards. He writes, Meanwhile, back in Hong Kong, a hopeful Malaysian film producer named Willie Chen was looking for a way to establish himself. He was duly impressed by Jackie's contributions to such Samo-influenced films as Hand of Death, directed by a promising newcomer named John Wu, and sold the flagging low way on the idea that this fledgling star was the perfect choice to become the, quote, new Bruce Lee. Jackie, bored by construction work and unable to find contentment down under, was ready to give Kung Fu films another try, intrigued by Chan's possibilities. Wei signed Chan to a long-term contract, changed his name to Sheng Long, which meant uh, Little Dragon, and sent him immediately to work on New Fist of Fury. So this movie, you know, in some ways, still led directly to Lo Wei, who of course would mishandle <laughs> Jackie Chan in all sorts of different ways. But, uh, you know, we're well on our way to Jackie Chan's... Uh, stardom it's just we have a few hiccups to hit before it actually uh it actually comes through but you know this is kind of a, a formative movie for him not just as a performer because he got noticed and it allowed him to get that contract um and allowed him to continue to make martial arts movies but also his interactions with john woo which apparently like years and years later once john woo was established in hollywood they would like reminisce together about making this movie and thinking about how far they would come <laughs> the 1997 john woo and jackie chan are certainly a lot different than the 1976 version of both well, I think it's funny, too, because if I said to someone, hey, you know, Jackie Chan did a John Woo movie because of who they are later that everyone knows, that sounds impossible. That sounds like a terrible <laughs> idea, by the way. It just is like, no, why would you put Jackie Chan in one of those movies? But um, at this moment, they aren't who they would become. It's just exactly. a funny collaboration. It's, you know, you would see the same thing in music, right? That like two people collaborated as. 20 somethings that now that we know them as established musicians it's like well that doesn't go together at all but maybe you know at this time it kind of does i did want to bring up one other thing uh even though i should have probably brought it up earlier which is that john woo acts in this movie uh he plays a scholar that the the kind of a uh macguffin type character and that everyone is looking for him throughout the movie and then he's the person who basically has to be protected uh as he's like um uh, he has to be put on a raft and put across this pond. And then, I mean, there's a lot of betrayal that happens at this point. What did you think of seeing John Woo as a performer in this movie? I missed that. I didn't realize oh, that was him. Okay. Didn't That's even him. occur to me. Yeah, no. <laughs> wow. I, I've only seen pictures of John Woo as like a fully adult man. like a, Exactly. Like, like an older man. And so I would never have recognized him. He's, he's basically a baby in this movie. He just he doesn't look like the John Woo that I recognize because, again, by the time I was familiar with John Woo, he was, you know, he, he had been making movies for something like 15 years or more, right? So it, uh, uh, it is interesting to see him here. I don't think his performance is necessarily notable, but it is kind of neat just to see so many recognizable faces in this movie. And I'm, not just the ones that we talked about. If you're familiar with Golden Harvest movies from this time period, that's the thing. That's one of the fun things about watching a lot of either Golden Harvest or Shaw, or, um, or Shaw Brothers movies. There's uh, some of the uh, the Venom Mob are in this movie. You get to see Wilson Tong, one of my favorite martial arts stars. Uh, he shows up in the Shaolin Massacre at the very beginning of the movie. Just a lot of familiar faces that I'm sure we're going to be seeing a lot of before this project is done. Liam O'Donnell, that was 
The Hand of Death from the year 1976. Would you recommend it to uh, people who are interested in John Woo, Jackie Chan, or just martial arts films in general? I think martial arts films in general, definitely. I think mm-hmm. for John Woo, it's a bit of a mixed bag because if you're someone who has a very narrow view of what it is you want from John Woo, then mm-hmm. this isn't going to scratch that itch. This is not yeah. the same as Hard Boiled or as A Better Tomorrow 2 or whatever. You know what I mean? But um, if you're someone who just likes a solid martial arts movie from this period this is definitely one that i would put on the list this is i would play this at a marathon easily like it's it's definitely an entertaining film now speaking of famous names that were going to have an influence on jackie chan's career going forward liam what are we going to be covering on the next episode of we do our own stunts well, we're going to be covering uh, Jimmy Wang Yu's The Killer Meteors, which I have never seen and know nothing about. Now, this is going back into the uh, into the more reasonable chronological aspect of his career. This is a low-way produced film. I remember The Killer, Me- Killer Meteors being all over bins of public domain movies after Jackie Chan um, had kind of his mid-90s American breakthrough uh, and it, it, like this movie was available on VHS everywhere and on DVDs and really ugly looking copies. Um, I'd never encountered it at the time, so I have not seen the Kill- Killer Meteors, but I certainly am familiar with the career of Jimmy Wang Yu, who is someone that I think in our next episode we're going to be talking about at length. He is a very controversial figure uh, in the, the world of Kung Fu films, uh, not just because of uh, things that you see on screen, but also a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. So we're going to be talking about that on the next episode of We uh, Do Our Own Stunts, The Killer Meteors. Excited, Liam? Pretty stoked. (laughs) Do you have any thoughts on Jimmy Wang Yu? Do you know much about him? I don't, actually. I'm a total uh, neophyte. I bet you know a little about him because uh, you are familiar with a movie called The Man from Hong Kong, even if you haven't seen it. Oh, Um, I I have seen that on film, actually. Right. Um, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 totally. And qu- and kind of notoriously, Jimmy Wang Yu, uh, who stars in that movie, uh, was a complete asshole to everybody on the set and just, you know, everyone fucking despised working with him the entire time. And that's kind of his re- reputation going forward is that he is just generally a piece of garbage human. Uh, if you go to his Wikipedia page right now, I mean, we'll get into some of those details next time, but he just is quite the character. And uh, him and... Jackie Chan's career will become entwined a little bit later. We'll talk about that on the next episode as well. Liam, if people want to check out more episodes of We Do Our Own Stunts or more podcasts from Cinema Smorgasbord, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, they can head on over to Cinepunks.com, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, to find out not just about this show, but a whole family of podcasts, as well as some great writing. Um, If they want just our archive of shows of the various podcasts, uh, topics that we cover, they can head over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. Uh, they can also find us on Twitter if they want to get updates about uh, you know, when episodes are coming out, what we're doing, how you're feeling about the world. Uh, and that's at cinemasmorg, mm-hmm. S-M-O-R-G, on Twitter. You can, of course, follow Liam on Twitter. That's at Liam Rules, R-U-L-Z. Or you can follow me, Doug Tilly, on Twitter, at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L. E-Y. Yes, please check out Cinepunks.com. They've just recently uh, revised the website. I think it's a lot neater and cleaner, and I hopefully uh, people can check out all the other interesting, wonderful podcasts that are on that site. And yeah, if you are a fan of Cinema Smorgasbord, why don't you do us a favor and uh, leave us reviews on iTunes and recommend us to friends if you can. We have some new podcasts that will be debuting in the year 2021 that I'm very excited about. But for now, Liam, we need to... Whew, we need Whew. to take a little break. Boy, I'm yeah. exhausted after talking about Hand of Death. We're going to be back very soon with the Killer Meteors. Good night, everybody. Night, night. Mm-hmm.